Hey everybody, welcome to Outspoken, episode 41. I am your host, Justin White, coming to you today from my basement workspace area. It's this sort of unfinished, dank, dark cement room that I can barely stand up in, in, in places. And I love it. I work down here, I have tools and shit, and uh, I come down here to record some of the times with my daughters upstairs, which is the case tonight. Um, my guest is my old-time friend, Cy D. Um, she and I have known each other for 20-plus years, but as with many of my friends, we don't see each other very often, and we don't talk very often, and it's a bummer. And I'll take at least 50% of the credit for that. I'll take actually about 70% of the credit for that in all of my friendships and maybe like 80 to 88 in some of them. In other words, I could do a little better at reaching out. Um, but that's kind of what this show is about. One by one. Uh, so my, um, oh, I want to say a little bit about my trip to Los Angeles last weekend. Um, I went to see my brother very, very briefly and drove down with my friend Aaron G, who you might know as episode one and episode 40. Um, and if you don't know him as those, you might want to check him out. Um, but we drove down very early Friday morning. I'm, I did, uh, I recorded six episodes between Friday afternoon and Sunday afternoon and then we drove back Sunday night and it was great it was really super cool lots of great people lots of great conversations I'm super grateful that I get to do this it's so much fun I can't stand it so even though my hands are clean and dry I'm gonna hit this hand dryer because I like the sound of it and even though I know that's not ecologically sound I'm doing it anyway and it already happened it's in the past so come and get me. Do you think we're really going to run out of things no, to say? No, probably not. <laughs> I, I mean, like... I, but I, as a concept, I, I'm also just curious about starting points. And I think partly because I, you know, going from being collage to doing things that are more painting oriented, like the blank, starting with the blank versus starting with the nudge, you know? Right. Is an interesting idea to me. That's true. That. Yeah. I, I mean, I used to love in, I think it was first grade, we had those little one line, the sentence starters or story starter. I don't know what they really were called. But we, you know, we had to write, learn how to write creative fiction. And that's what we would use. It's like one line. The, right. three, the three, you know, rats crawled out <laughs> of the sewer and blank and yeah. then you get to do whatever you want and it was one of the coolest things for me and you could choose from several either there, there were usually five or i don't know they, she had a whole deck of them but she would put up did she write them or did she get no, they were these like i don't scholastic i think there was yeah something? i think there were scholastic story starters or mm -hmm. you know um <clears throat> we're rolling by the way okay. if you want to just jump yeah. in if you don't mind yeah you're comfortable and have yeah your, okay good. Cool. cool um yeah that was one of my favorite times of of, in school in that grade anyway was fiction and it was partly I don't know I think I liked the idea that you could start you could start your own I, I, I don't think I had trouble coming up with an idea but I loved that 
at random you could just kind of be given one and yeah. then and then you kind of have to your brain just immediately starts on it's it's left such that you can't help but finish it that's kind of the way i live my life in general i love getting just random pieces of things like today i was looking for something just to read in the morning just to kind of get myself started i just found an old new yorker and started reading this article about this Norwegian fiction writer and it ended up having so much to do with the stuff I'd been thinking about early you know earlier in the morning and it was just this weird you know synergy between things and I find that happens to me all the time I mean we are pattern making machines so it's not surprising that you've just pick something up and it somehow meshes into something else that you've been thinking about because I think we're, we're kind of designed to do that but I you know, even watching snippets of movies, like watching five minutes of a movie and just sort of seeing how that changes my consciousness and switching it to something else. I really, I don't know, I really enjoy that way of being. I do too. It's cool. It's cool with books when you, I don't know if you've had this experience where you're reading a book or you you finish one book, you're not really sure what to read next. You have a few options. You're driven, you're like pulled toward one more than another. Pick it up, start reading. And there's some reference to the other book or the other, the topic in the other book or something. There's some tie in to what you just read. Yeah. I've had that happen with like three or four books in a row where there's like this, I'm being pulled in this weird direction and I kind of, I just let it. And that's how I am with life as well. Just intuition is, is the guide. The question is when to step in and intervene, and intervene or, uh, choose some kind of focus or direction that feels like where you've kind of called these things together and decided that this is the path you want to take. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it for you? What... I, I mean, I, I'm still sort of figuring that out because I think I, I love that feel, that thrill of how one thing leads to another. Mm-hmm. But then I find that you can end, you can find yourself a little bit unrequited sometimes because you things don't, sometimes they add up to something greater than the parts right. and other times they just end up being a series of parts. So, um, I don't know. I mean, just trying to understand what I want to retain. Cause I think in a way that's also a very in the moment way of being where you, it's hard to even describe what that experience is of these weird interconnections that you saw. And then you mm-hmm. try to, if you're trying to tell somebody about something you're reading, it's not like you're reading a book and there's a plot you can describe to them. It's more of this, well, I was reading this and then it connected me to this and then it connected to me. It's like trying to explain your dream to somebody. Yeah, I was going to say, or like a deja vu or something. Yeah, you know, it's, it's exciting like, to you, but it, it doesn't it really. It, to hear as it. soon as you try to explain it, it just slips through your fingers <laughs> yeah. and you have no idea what actually happened. It actually becomes boring <laughs> to, you, to you and the listener. You're yeah. Like, no, wait, this isn't, that's not really. It's because it's about the emotional content, right? Like dreams are so much more about. The, the psychological and emotional content, I think. I think so, but I mean, also the story I think... storyline is important sometimes. I don't know if I just... I don't really remember my dreams. I remember them as a feeling and not as a something that I can readily describe. That, that's what I mean. Yeah. Like it's really hard to put it in a back into the context in which it, it existed there because that was so fluid and, you know, nebulous to begin with, yeah. usually, yeah. I think. Um so, but all right, I was going to ask about, um, in terms of having things sort of come up, you know, come up and just appear and be, whether it's coincidence or whatever, how, how much do you believe in the idea that you can draw things to yourselves? Like you, you can, you can manifest or do you think it, if you do 
Do you think it's just a matter of heightened awareness? Like if the, like something you said, we're padding pattern making machines, right? Yeah. So do you think that's just our wiring in our brain and we automatically see faces and clouds and we see, you know, we start to put things in categories all the time? Or do you think that there's some part of us drawing things to ourselves? Yeah. So like on a quantum on some kind of quantum level, yeah. we're actually changing the dynamics that are going on around us. Either quantum, you know, whether if it's physics or spirituality or whatever, however you want to frame it, like in some way we're energetically, whatever, we're just drawing to us what we, what yeah. the, the same thing that we're putting out there. Well, I guess I meant like in a sense in quantum physics that whether it's a, what it is depends somewhat on the way you're looking at it and what you're right. trying to measure, you know? Right. And, and Whether so, the experiment is influenced by the, the watcher yeah, or the experiment. Right. And so I don't know. I kind of go back and forth. I mean, I do think there's certain things that we just do naturally, like finding faces. I mean, they think there's a part of the brain. Yeah. I was just thinking about this today, actually. There's a name for that. Yeah, right? it's the uh, like facial fusiform gyrus, you know, like okay. an actual part of the brain you can measure with electrophysiology. I did a little bit of this in grad school, and you can measure with electrophysiology, and you can see that there's a particular kind of waveform every single time you see a face, and that it's actually the same across people. So they believe wow. that they believe that this this is sort of hardwired or something that we are trained we train up to to be able to do well, from looking at they, faces. Haven't they studied it in chimps too? And had maybe. Like, Maybe. Some... I didn't do any chimp studies. Oh, okay. but... <laughs> Why not? Don't you back up all your human studies with chimp studies? I don't know. You know, as a kid, my dad had uh, rhesus monkeys in his lab, and it used to be really frightening. We would go, and they had the monkey room, and you'd and go in, and they would just and... shake the cages and oh. get really aggressive. And it was How old were you the first time you went in there? Very small. I mean, we spent our whole childhood going into the lab on the weekends and helping my father do experiments on cats. Oh. When I was in third grade, I took like cat lungs out with my dad and then brought them to school for show and tell to my scholars program. <laughs> and uh, the thing about lung tissue is that it, it really only stays firm because of the oxygen that's ex it's expo being exposed to. So okay. once you take them out, even though we blew them up and plugged the, the uh, I guess, the trachea on the top yeah. and the bottom so they'd stay uh, fat. Yeah. Once I took them to school and, you know, as the day went on, all the kids touching them, their finger depressions were stayed in the lungs. So they became yeah. these weird sort of saggy kinds of Dirty organs. Sponges. Yeah. Gross. And I think everyone thought I was really, really weird that I brought yeah, that to school. I <laughs> but I bet you got A pluses on all your science. Well, this was a scholar's program. I don't know if we got oh. any grades. I think we just sort of were. We just existed. Oh, okay. Wow. But <laughs> Amazing. So what was that? I remember you telling me that a long time ago that your dad you know, worked on cat. I didn't know that you helped him. That's did, but you also had cats at home. As we did. Pets, right. Yeah. We actually, our cat growing up, our Siamese cat was a cat that we got from the lab and she was, I might've told you this before. She was a rejected cat because they didn't like working on Siamese cats. There was some superstition that the experiments always went haywire. Really? And so we adopted this sweet, awesome cat and and but every time we went on vacation and we would take these long trips in the summer because my father would go to meetings and so we would mm -hmm. be gone for maybe like six weeks or something like driving and we would put the cat in the lab in the animal room with like a sign on the cage that would say dr DeGroat's cat do not use and my father loved because he's sort of a sadistic joker mm -hmm. when we'd come back when we'd go to get her we're like well i hope no one used ty for an experiment and this was Jeez. always like the horror of going into the lab to retrieve the cat and Wondering find that she was actually, actually there oh, that's so sick 
Is he, have you ever talked to him about that? Like what a I, twisted sort of joke that is? I, I don't know. I don't think as an adult I've really talked no? to him about it. No. But do you, do you just have that understanding in your family? Like is that a that's that's a how type he was. of humor? That, okay. That's what my mother would say. That's a degrote trait. Okay. She, she'd dissociate herself from that. Do you think that you've inherited that? I mean, I think I, when I was younger, I was much more sarcastic and yeah. cruel. I could be cruel. And I, I sort of beat that out of myself. Hmm. I, I didn't really like that quality. Cruel I, like in a bullying sort of way? I wouldn't I maybe I would I wouldn't like to characterize myself as a bully but Sorry, I think when I, I was I younger that, well no but I mean when I was younger I think that being brought up like that you just you just kind of can go for the jugular and and not really think about how even though it made me feel bad it, yeah. it was so natural do you think it relates to that just being like having your dad yeah. say things like that or do you think it relates to your physical experience in the lab and having this sort of like <laughs> I don't know when early... I was a kid I thought that was fun I mean you I did? used to really like going in there and I mean the monkeys were a little scary yeah and there was one time but you knew what was happening you knew I those knew animals were doing not gonna experiments. survive right? yeah none of them like except for your Siamese and you know maybe every think... 15 years and uh, one Siamese would be saved but yeah otherwise... I don't think as a child I I thought of it I mean, okay, so another, I probably told you this, when we were even younger, my father had like spinal, like kittens that had spinal cords cut. And so they were like, mm. you know, partially crippled and right. they, we, he like brought them home and we sort of took care of them. And like in accidents or, or at no, the lab? No, this is part, like, of, this is the, part, of, part of the research, oh, you know. And, what, and so, were they, what were they researching? I hope it's something my dad, my or I'm going to judge, does, I'm going to judge you and your, <laughs> and your family retroactively. My poor father. Yeah, Luckily no. he's retiring soon. Um, okay, good. He studied bladder, basically blad, how to help people who had their spinal cord in, injured control their bladders oh, so basically learning how to electrically stimulate the bladder and wow. um make it so the people who couldn't otherwise control their bladders could actually function and so um is that's the basic science research that he's been doing his whole career which wow. was kind of um there really wasn't apparently when he first started doing this there really wasn't a lot of research in this area at all and he yeah. went to australia and then sort of founded this area of research so that's what they were doing but do you know what led him to that specifically? I don't. Um, I don't really know. I mean, he went to basically went to pharmacy school because he wanted to become a pharmacist because he didn't really have any big ambitions and then <laughs> discovered science and sort of this whole world opened up for him. Hmm. But maybe since he's retiring this year, I'll ask him how he ended up getting into that area, although it could turn into like a three-hour lecture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, to get back to your question, when I was growing up, I didn't really think of this as unusual. I mean, this is a perfect example of something that if you grow up with it, yeah, you don't really think about it. Even though I thought the cats were cute and sweet and I loved petting them and I loved cats, I didn't have, I felt that this was necessary. It was like a complete split yeah, you know, what your in dad my brain. Does for work. Yeah. And, and I wasn't squeamish mm -hmm. about it at mm -hmm. all. And even when I was in high school, I was a candy striper. And I remember going and watching all sorts of surgeries, like eating my lunch. I was watching like a heart lung transplant and <laughs> no problem. not having any issue. And, and now you still don't No, No, no like... I'm, I'm terrible now. I mean, when I see gr gross things on TV, I don't want to see it. Really? Or see sur yeah. It's so strange. It's something Do you know that when it switched. I don't or... know why. I don't know if it's just not being exposed to it for a long period of time or all the sort of moral and ethical things that become introduced as you get older. Yeah. Or could it just also be over saturation of, for, I think for me, that's what it is. Like I can't, I can't take in any more negative Im imagery. 
It's full. Well, that's full. true. And it sits there and gets recycled through my brain, and it's ugly, and I don't like it. So I don't. So I'm like, I have to limit the input in that regard. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. But I think there's something to this idea that when you're young and you see something like a surgery being performed it's this crazy world that you're it's like looking at outer space or you know you're you're taking a journey into the into this thing and you maybe don't have all these emotional connections with it of thinking about the things that have happened to people who've had surgeries or knowing people who've had illnesses or you know the all the emotional valence that you get from all the experiences you have over life and so i think a lot of it is that that when I was a kid, there I never heard anybody talk about animals being abused in labs or any of that kind of stuff. You so, didn't? No, as a like a as an elementary school child. Hmm. You know, like PETA and all that stuff wasn't at that age. No, really? I don't remember any of that. Huh. I don't know. At what age are you talking? Oh, about? like when I was in elementary school. I don't know, like seven or eight, hmm. nine years old. I think. Well, maybe I maybe my radar was pointed in that direction. Well, I mean, it? maybe it's just that that wasn't part of. That wasn't something my parents were necessarily going to be talking about. Yeah. You know? I don't remember mine talking about it either, but I remember being conscious of it. And I remember, hmm. I'm not sure what tipped me off to the to that stuff. Whether I used to sit around and read the encyclopedia, so that might be how I learned about lab, lab testing. Or I, I don't know. I also watched a lot of movies when I was younger than I should have been <laughs> to watch them. You know, having an older brother and, and a, you know. Oh, a mom, a mom. Who, You're wise beyond your years. <laughs> well, I think, well, in, well, I don't know if wisdom, that may also be true, but I think this is just, I'm a, I've been exposed beyond my years. I've been, I've had things introduced to me earlier than they yeah. maybe should have been. I don't know. I think that's true for a lot of people. I think, especially now, kids don't really, there's no filter left. It's I just can't a, imagine. Yeah, I, I do imagine, but it doesn't feel doesn't feel good. I don't sit with it for too long because I, I, I hate the idea that that's what's happening to my own kid or to just kids in general. Yeah. And just being bombarded. Yeah, I don't think, I don't have that feeling about my childhood. I feel like I, I wasn't sheltered, but I don't think that I was exposed to things. There were a lot of really insane people who lived in my street and mm-hmm. you know kind of a real cast of nutty characters and, yeah um some boo radley types or, uh... <laughs> well like a guy who was obsessed with his lawn and mm-hmm. so you couldn't put your feet on his lawn we had one you of could those. never touch his lawn we had at least one of those yeah, on the block. yeah. and then one y- one year his lawn wasn't looking as good as usual but then suddenly all of a sudden other people's lawns had some lie or something put on them so they all turned brown it was oh, as if shit. he'd gone out and destroyed other people's lawns so that his lawn would still look better, even though it was, um, you know, not. That's almost certainly what happened, right? Yes. Well, that, yes. And he also never worked. He had had a really sketchy job where he was a, the guy who would um, inventory a safe deposit box after someone <laughs> passed away before the family even got Holy to look shit. at it. They worked for this, he worked for the state, which apparently wasn't a cushy enough job for him. So then he actually slipped in a bank and hurt his back and was on disability our, pretty much our entire childhood. So, um, so first he was, he was more than likely pilfering yes. boxes uh-huh. of jewels and cash and whatever couldn't be traced. Yes. And then also filed a m- more than likely faulty uh, insurance fraud claim. Exactly. Uh, Earl. 
And he used Earl. to beat his kids, Jesus. chase his kids down the street with like a, like pulling the belt out of his pants oh as gosh. he's running down the street. Yelling at them. Yeah, for, yelling at them. Who knows what, for he, stepping on the lawn. Or who knows. He also had all the exotic pets of the 70s, a piranha. Right. He had all and kinds iguana. of tropical birds, iguana. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he uh, was one else? of the... What other iguanas? He was... Mar- <laughs> marijuana? Did he... Was he... Uh, no, but he was... His best friend was this guy who ran this place called the Junction Pharmacy, which was <laughs> almost certainly a, a drug front. front. Jesus. And the, the Junction. The highlight of my, I guess I was in fifth grade, was I was walking by his house and I found this bill, mm-hmm. money on the ground, and picked it up. Do you remember super, the denomination? Super excited, like uh-huh. running home. First, I thought it was a dollar. Uh-huh. Ran home, and then I got to my house, and I was like, I found a $10 bill. And then my parents were like, no, that's a $100 bill. So I found a $100 bill on the ground outside of Earl's house, which oh, must man. have come off of someone's big wad of drug cash. That's amazing. <laughs> it was so exciting. Did they let you keep it? They did. Did I they know they where it, it in the bank. From? Yeah, I told them, and th- I think they were perfectly okay with that. Yeah, yeah put it to good use yeah i always found a lot of money when i was a kid you did yeah. i did too where did you used to like put your finger in pay oh, phones yeah. and everywhere every little, uh-huh. everything that dispensed coins yes constantly and would find things yes right? all even the time. when we were we traveled in europe when i was a kid a little bit and i would find money all the time everywhere that's so funny yeah. some people are just designed that way i mean it maybe it's just a you know being aware is part of it but i think some people are just lucky in that yeah. specific way i used to walk by and just like pull a vending machine thing and a thing would pop <laughs> out I, you know like really weird stuff i would do i don't know i've found so much stuff that it seems impossible that it would have been i mean money but also things that were lost that yeah. in insane places you know i found out somebody lost their fork their special fork this hobo girl that i knew <laughs> She had a fork that she'd been traveling with for like eight years and had only used that to eat. And she lost it at Mardi Gras, like somewhere in New Orleans during the the <laughs> insanity of Mardi Gras. And she was distraught. Like she couldn't, she, without that fork, she was lost. And I said, I'll go find it. And I set out and like, <laughs> she, everybody in the house that I was in when I left was like, you're not going to. You won't find it. You know, there's no way. And she was like, you can't. How could you possibly find it? I said, well, where did you come from? And she told me her path. And I started walking it in reverse and looking. And there it was. I found it. And she was over the moon and, you know, in endless gratitude. And I was convinced I had magical powers. And uh, Wow. Yeah. And I've tried to use that since. and For good, not uh, for evil. Only for good. Only for, <laughs> always for good, yeah. No, just, I don't know. I think that if you, it's sort of like what I was talking about. If you can manifest by thinking about something, you can intend for something. And I actually just told a story, I think on the last one, about the same thing with a double A battery. I needed needed a battery and I willed it into being. In your house you found one? No, out in the streets of Chicago. In the (laughs) the gutter. Yeah, Yeah, in my house. That would be super impressive. (laughs) Oh, man, if, if I could just find... A battery, just one. Well, I think there's also a certain amount of determination. I had this experience. I was walking back from Glen Park down the hill, kind of right under the highway over there. Mm -hmm. And it was a rainy day. I had a raincoat on. And I don't know. I moved somehow, and the button popped off my raincoat. And I sort of heard it and saw it out of the corner of my eye, but I could not find it. And I was an insane person for 25 minutes on the sidewalk and looking in the street to find this button which had this mottled color that 
somehow was completely camouflaged. No on, matter on, where, it no matter was. where I was looking, yeah. I finally did find it. But it really, I have never looked that hard for something where I really, I almost gave up several times. In fact, I think I walked away and then walked back again because I didn't. I knew it had to be somewhere. Yeah. Was it that you didn't think you'd be able to replace it or that it just like it needed to be found because you knew it hit the ground somewhere in that vicinity? Well, it was a vintage coat and it didn't have the extra button inside. So Mm -hmm. I didn't think I'd be able to replace it. But it was more the sense that I heard it fall. It didn't go across the street. Yeah. I knew it, may it have had entered another universe. It may well, have that's entered... what I started to wonder. <laughs> yeah. And then I thought, well, I don't know if I believe that that's possible. So, so I, have I have to, to find this button. Yeah. So it had to do with your belief in science and your need to, to <laughs> confirm it, right? You were going to yes. lose your mind if you t- if it like had slipped into some wormhole in time? Uh, yeah, I couldn't handle that. I, I don't believe in this wormhole. I don't believe that <clears throat> socks disappear in the dryer and all of these other kinds of you things. Don't? No. Well, then where's my Swiss Army knife from childhood? I don't know. Disappeared. Disappeared into thin air. When? In childhood? When I was 13 or something. Yeah. I had one of those really kick-ass ones with 76 different, you know, items. uh, Someone probably stole it from your house. One of your friends. It's possible. I mean, that's probably the most likely explanation. (laughs) I just don't want to believe it. I hate to say that about your friends. Well, I even confronted one of them, and he denied it. And um, I don't know. It's, you know, it's a... But it is... You don't believe it's uh, there's any way that something could. Do I believe there's some kind of hole? There are holes in the universe where things can just slip out of this dimension. Yeah, dematerialize somehow, or or. I don't know. Vanish it's, and reappear. I mean, later. it sort of doesn't matter. I could believe in it or not. It doesn't. Yeah. It's probably not going to change my behavior, because I still wouldn't give up on that button. You wouldn't, because <laughs> if you believed in that, I think you might. I think it just you, seems you like give an excuse to be lazy sooner uh, or just an excuse, not even an excuse for me. It's, it's keeping something open. That is interesting to think about keeping it open as a possibility and, and enjoying the, the idea that that could happen. It's to me, that's more interesting and entertaining than shutting that down and saying, no, it doesn't work. Doesn't I happen. hate losing UFOs, things. No, so never, you know, well, I think it's because I do, ab- absolutely dislike losing things. So if it comes, thinking about a different dimension coming out of a lo- loss of something is not the way I'd like to get to that. Do, I okay. do agree that it's an interesting idea, yeah. but I can't make the leap from being agitated about losing something to enjoying contemplating yeah. what kinds of other dimensions there may be.
if you're looking at something with an open mind and you're curious and you actually want to know what it's about and you want to turn some ideas around in your mind and share them with other people, I think you should be allowed to do that. If you're, if you're just simply trying to state your stance in order to be, to win or to shut somebody down or to say your movement has no validity or whatever, then I think it's, that's where you should stop. You know, that's, those are the people you should say, no, you can't talk about this. Right. It's not yours. But the people who want to talk about it because they have something valuable to add or might be an ally to one of those people, why would you shut them out? You know? Well, it's a weird, it's a weird thing because it just seems like this extreme tribalism where mm -hmm. you've, you've decided that this is your group and the only people who can actually, <clears throat> the only people who can actually talk to you about your group are people who are in your group. Right. And so then it makes you think, well, what is the mission then? If your if your mission is to try to get your message out there and to get people interested in your group, I'm not sure that that makes a whole lot of sense because you're you have your you're preaching to your choir and yeah. and you're disinterested in everyone else's viewpoint. And so I think there's a lot of that going on now where people seem like they're fueled by anger but not really actually interested in communicating and not really interested in uh, getting people to join their, their group. Right. So it's more about establishing the, the lines and the, you know, yeah. Drawing, drawing a cord and the flags and the, and the boundaries and saying, we are this type of person. You are that type of person. Yeah. And I mean, so I, I, I mean, I have a lot of questions about a lot of the protesting that's going on these days and how much of it has an agenda of trying to actually state a stance and get more people to buy into that and join that cause mm -hmm. and how much of it is really just pure expression of rage and anger and uh, a sense of cordoning off like we're talking about this is our boundary and we're here yeah and deal with it but but beyond that what is the objective because I don't think I don't think that making everybody an enemy of your cause unless they are already part of your cause is is a very good strategy. Yeah. I, that's <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I don't really get it. I I don't get why if it's a cause at all, then why not bring in everyone, you know, bring in as many as you can. If you're really and that's why I don't think that some of these are I don't think that people are behind the cause. I think they're behind their own persona or whatever right. um, or whatever it is. I don't know. Maybe I, I think a lot of people join up with the right reasons or maybe things change once they're, I don't know. I don't know how that, you know, I don't want to be in any club. I don't want to be a part of any one thing. So, but I do want to be free to talk about all of them, you know? Yes, I and, agree. And I do, and I am. <laughs> like, well, it's a I weird live somewhere where you're allowed to. It's know. a bizarre contradiction, especially for a, any group that's saying that they're ignored or overlooked, to, to then, then say, tell don't people, talk, "Don't talk about yeah, me. Don't yeah. talk about us. Don't have an opinion about yeah. us. Give me attention. And don't look at me." It's yeah. a very. It means a very confused um, agenda. Yeah. It would seem. It is. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing seems confused to me because it's not, you're not benefiting anyone but your own select exclusive, you know, crew that you decided was 
on the inside. So what is, if that is your agenda, then you're, you know, you're setting yourself up for you against everyone. But this is like standard sort of in-group, out-group kind of politics. I mean, if you just think about any social clique that you've ever been part of and yeah, how... Or any committee was, or any anything. And any, how any much workplace, any. people pull rank, they, they, they pull in the ranks. Mm-hmm. Is that the expression? Close ranks, you know, uh-huh. and, and, and really have to have somebody be on the outside, you know, that, that somehow the nature of being in a group is as much about the inclusion as the exclusion. Yeah, I think you're right. And maybe more so about the exclusion. <laughs> maybe more so, maybe more so. And I mean, certainly if it doesn't feel like a community, if your group is not a community, then it's not, community is not the intent. The intent is build a, build up a team to fight the other teams, you know? But I think you hit on something when you were saying about, it's more, maybe more about people's persona, because I, I do think getting back to your original idea of, people want you to be interested in what they're interested in, that they think that what they're interested in is the most important thing. And, right. you know, that that whole sort of uh, elitism, you know, of, well, these are the important things to care about. These yep. are the, this is the important kind of music to listen to. And if you don't listen to this kind of music, then, you know, you don't have bad taste. And <laughs> having good taste is this sort of constant, you know, reaffirmation of the self and the value of the self. And and so, you know, you've, you can feel that some of these larger cultural movements are the reaffirmation of the self writ large. Right. <laughs> it's the reaffirmation of the self in the form of a group yeah. where you mostly want to tell people that what you care about is the most important thing, but you don't really care if they care about it. Right. You just want them to know that you do it's and your that identifier. you are superior a, yeah. for that thing. Yeah. And I hate that as an idea <laughs> yeah, I mean, me too. I hate this notion that you have to subscribe to some sort of canon of things that are important in in life and mm-hmm. um, maybe become an expert at them and and reinforce this idea that they're worthwhile and that you can use that as kind of a sledgehammer against other people to put them in their place or right. put yourself on your pedestal and I think we need to celebrate ignorance a little bit more in this society. Not ignorance like we we have going on in our politics. Yeah, yeah. But I mean ignorance in the sense of it's okay to not know about something. Right. It and and that that should then lead you to curiosity, right. not shame. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas you should be truly ashamed if you are gleefully, willfully ignorant. Proactively. Ignorant. Yes. Yeah. And and uh <clears throat> manipulating the world through your ignorance. You know, right. I think those are two kind of different ideas, but totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting thought to celebrate ignorant, you know, celebrate the right kind of, you know, just, well, I, I've always thought it's weird that people want to, you know, if you, because you haven't learned this thing yet, I'm going to make fun of you or I'm going to make you feel bad for it. Like the, the information just simply hasn't arrived yet for that in that person's life. Like, how do you, how are you giving them hell for? Yes. Who are you to decide what I should know? Yeah. At what rate should I learn which things like that's that, but that's how we kind of walk around like you idiot. You don't know how to do that. You know, we do, we do sort of walk around with that at least subconsciously. I think this sort of elitism or something where it's like, well, I knew that when I was a kid, like, what are you, you ding dong, you're right. still, you're grown up and you don't know how to, do this simple, basic 
human thing, you know, it's hard not to do that, to do it. And I think people do it. Well, it can be really hard to believe that someone doesn't know something that you consider basic information. Yeah, that's true. But to make, take the next step and to, then judge the person for that yeah, make them or think feel that it bad for it is... that it says that they're somehow inferior or lazy or haven't cared enough for yeah. their education or their knowledge of the world is, is a sort of a leap too far. I think most those of the things time. could be true, but they could also be true about somebody who has all the advantages and all the access. And, you know, they might choose to not seek that stuff out and uh, be seen not as ignorant in the same way, like they wouldn't be judged for it if they came from this other class or something, you know, like yeah. there, are way, there are ways in which we've already drawn out the roles and you're just going to be labeled automatically because I've already decided that somebody who looks this way has this set of attributes and somebody who looks this way is, you know, that's how it feels to me. All the shortcuts that we take. Yeah. And they're immediate. I mean, our brains are, are masterful at, at just, jumping to conclusions based on this set of data, you know? Well, that's why all of our subconscious biases can just sort of play out without us really ever even understanding. Or even if you do understand it, you can some, you can sometimes you... watch it play out in front of you. Like, shit, I'm doing that thing again that I know that I do and I don't want to be doing anymore. Right. You know, that's, it's weird. Some of it feels like it's, it's uh, chemically ordained or something, you know, like your brain, it's like too bad. These synapses already know what they're doing. They're going on without you. <laughs> well, that's where, that's where you can only try to be more self-aware. Yeah. I mean, people can only try to be more self-aware. But also to, because that's always been my goal, and that's kind of the thing I rely on. I go back to my own assessment of things. When I need, if I need to check in, I check in with myself. Like I need to bring more awareness to this issue. I don't check what other, you know, I probably should check more <laughs> in with other people. What do you, how do you do this? Or what do you, but um, <laughs> but I think that we're um, in society, we're not checking in with each other and we're not giving a shit about how other people's methods, you know, how they arrive at their conclusions. Or, you know, we're right. not really asking them. Like, well, well, the example of having conversation with someone and them exposing either by choice or against their will that they're ignorant of something that you think they, is, should, know. they should know. Yeah. To me, that's like a really interesting moment in a conversation where you could actually have a great conversation that would come out of that because yeah. that could be a cool point of, you know, sort of the way that something that's a little flaw, it can be turned into the most interesting thing, you know, yeah. the, the wabi-sabi, you know, the wabi-sabi Japanese idea, like that, that flawed thing is what makes something beautiful. Right. Um, or when you're working on some project that the little mistake that you have can launch a whole new direction that you would have never gone on if you hadn't made this little error. I mean, I always think of it as these unexpected things. Why, why can't they be celebrated as potential for something interesting to happen as opposed to a thing that can shut down the conversation, lead to judgments, bad feelings, you yeah. know, and that's the end of that. And I, I think it's only because people double down into whatever it is they think their role should be mm -hmm. or who they think they are. Yeah, they're trying to revalidate this set of ideas they have about themselves which i don't really like oh i know this i know oh i'm i'm definitely smarter than everybody else in this room so, so then yeah so then I'm find why, every example of that why is that 
why is that your top order of business? You know, the, again, so this, shouldn't your top order of business be to try to connect with this person or understand what they're about or where they're coming from? You know, it's like the, the, the mechanism. I mean, sometimes with people, you can see their internal self-validating mechanisms at work. You yeah. know, you're at a party and you're talking to somebody and you can tell what's going on and right. you can tell wh where their mind is. Other people, it's a much more subtle, maybe behind the scenes process. But in general... Why does that have to be the process at all? Right. I mean, you know, shouldn't we, can we get to a point at some level in our life, at some age where we're not constantly just trying to validate ourselves with every single experience we have? We're just looking for a mirror that we can hold up to ourselves. You well, know? it does, you do notice that that it diminishes with age, right? I mean, most people, I think, feel that. They care less about what other people think about them, and they care, you know. Yeah, is it, because they feel better about themselves, or they just run out. Or of... they've, yeah, they're, <laughs> they're just resigned to being judged by everyone all the time, and you know, ah, who gives a shit? It's gonna happen anyway. I, I mean, I think it's probably some of both. You feel better about yourself. You feel more confident, less influenced by other people's opinions, if you know, negative opinions. Or maybe um, it's just maybe also people who don't think that they can change anymore it's not mm. really worthwhile checking into that if you're not going to bother trying to change yourself well anyway. that's certainly true yeah if you're not going to do shit about it then why <laughs> think about it well i think what i can't remember exactly what we were talking about but i think the reason i referenced my therapist is that she the thing she kept saying is like it takes a long long time for your to for you to change your brain's psychology you know yeah. even under optimal conditions it takes a long time and it takes a lot of work and a lot of focus and, you know, proactive uh, looking and and change, you know, behavior changing. Habits. Yeah, you have to actually look at stuff and do stuff differently and think about it a lot. And, and it takes, even when you're doing that with help and doing it well, it takes years and years and years. So if you're not doing any of that at all, right? you're just, you know, treading water or whatever you know you're just doing whatever you whatever tools you have you're just trying to do the best you can in life but you don't i don't know i think it's i don't think you're going to make a lot of headway with your own because we were talking about how you change your own view right how you how you stop doing something that you don't like or you start yeah. doing something differently i don't think you can do it very easily without some help and and uh the proper tools and and a lot of focused work some people are really stubborn though too well there's that too i mean i don't want to change i don't think i'm naturally a super stubborn i'm a pretty adaptable person which is sometimes a detriment for me where i'll mm. just adapt to situations even though they're not that great really yeah like I mean, I'll stay just stay in a shitty job for too long or something. Well, yeah. I mean, that last job I had was definitely like that. And, mm. and, and I will, I will, I will try to change myself to sort of fit into a situation. Is that just to avoid rocking the boat or, or what do you think is the impetus? I mean, maybe it's partly my upbringing of just, you know, there were rules of how you would do things and you sort of respond supposed to follow them and so it's easy to it's sometimes easy to think that whatever the external situation is is almost like a rule that you're supposed to somehow conform to mm. not that i think of myself i'm not really like a person who's going around trying to conform and no, be be the way that, that way. other people are or anything like that but i think i i often feel like the path of the most economical way to make something work is for me to try to change how I am. And, huh. and sometimes I feel like it's almost a challenge too. you know, it's like, uh, can I 
it's like figuring out how to make a collage work. You know, how can mm. I make all these pieces fit together? You know, how can I make this situation work? Well, I can only change myself. So I have to keep adjusting myself, like make myself the changing piece in, in the equation because but I you, can't change any other pieces. Right. Which is true. But it, but do you like, do you see it as a challenge, like a challenge that you want? It's a problem solving or? challenge. I guess I must see it that way mm. sometimes. It's taken me a long time to get to the point where I can say, especially if something seems bad and I think that I could somehow change myself to fix things. Yeah. That can be really intoxicating idea, oh, okay. even though it can be really just wrongheaded. And do you have evidence of it having worked? Well, sure. I mean, in any social dynamic situation, there are often people who are causing problems or having problems and one person can do something differently that okay. can sort of fix things or and you'll or be that suit. person sometimes now? yes i will often try to figure out how to do that and it's interesting because i i don't think that i'll be as attached to i won't be as attached to how i need to be in the situation when other people will be very determined that they will not change they won't budge mm. they're being stubborn you know so it's sometimes it's a way of dealing with very stubborn people huh um, to be more flexible to be to be as flexible as possible it's like an aikido move yeah. yeah but it's also it's interesting because it makes you also think about what's really important because then you start to realize that whatever whatever thing maybe you thought you had to maintain mm -hmm. maybe is really not that important and yeah. why are these other people so determined to not budge or not flexible or cooperate or yeah. sacrifice some personal idea that they have for the whole or the, the social unit, you know? So it, I don't know. It seems like it's always a good philosophical experiment to yeah, just what's cool. really important here. I do don't you see yourself doing that. Do you do little social experiments like that? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I see, I think most things as experiments in uh -huh. life, I guess maybe that's part of growing up, hanging out in my father's lab and, yeah. you know, always thinking that, and he's very much that kind of a person like, well, let's, let's try this. Let's, let's see, let's do this comparison. I mean, even when we go home, it's like, let's try all the different bourbons we have and taste test them and see which ones we like and what are their different qualities. And, you uh -huh. know, that's a very much of how I was raised. And so I think I, I always think that there's room to gather data and it's almost like gathering data can be something you do instead of, you know, having your particular take on the situation. It's like a way of being an objective observer as okay. opposed to being a subjective participant. Right. You can just keep looking for more evidence of what's there yeah. rather than say, here's what it is. Right. Here's what's going on. And so then it's kind of a natural, I guess the next mm -hmm. step, it's kind of natural to say, well, then I can, I'm an objective observer. I don't I'm not really caught up in what's going on. So what's the big deal for me to adjust myself huh. in the situation? And you don't feel it as a sacrifice or a compromise? No, it seems like it's become such a natural part of how I am that it's almost like I've had to work really hard to be very um, definitive about things or, or to decide, you know, there's that times when you're a group of people and nobody is really saying what they want to do. Yeah. Then in those cases, I have to force myself to try to find the path be the that decider. makes sense. Yeah. Be yeah. the decider. Yeah. Which is, you know, I can do that too. I yeah. mean, I can be bossy, but <laughs> Well, it's interesting that, that that's the immediate leap that you make, like being the decider equals being bossy because it doesn't need to be. It might just be that you know, you ha it's sort of like just suggesting something because nobody else is. Right. Uh, you could kick it off and get something headed in the right direction. Yeah. Just, you know, you, you're like the motivator. Uh, yeah, if, if, I think that that's, I think 
it's interesting that, that you notice that because I think it's being deciding to be the adaptable one is being very decisive in one way. And mm -hmm. then deciding on the other side sort of feels like, okay, well, if I'm not going to be the super flexible part, then I sort of want to just get this thing wrapped up, you know? Yeah. And I think it's been, I've had a, it's been a longer road for me to figure out how to be sort of a small kind of a quiet, uh, nudge or, yeah. you know, suggesting a path and figuring out how to work in the collaborative group in that yeah. way. I mean, that's not, that's not, it's not that I can't work with other people, but it's some, I'm definitely more of the person who will decide what they want to do and be comfortable with that and yeah. work that within the system. But collaborating, that's not something I've spent so much time doing in my life. Mm -hmm. Do you just have a desire to? Or you just... It's always fun. I'm always surprised by how much fun it is when <laughs> yeah. I do it. But it's not my first, it's not my first concept of what, how I want to go about doing right. something. Right. Same. It's like a special, it seems like it's still a special case for me mm -hmm. of something that's going to have its own set of unpredictable rules, outcomes, approaches. It feels very novel. Right. Which might be why it's cool. Like that's keeping it that way is what makes well, it. Well, yeah. But I think I also have a fear of novelty. Sometimes I think, as much as I was saying before, that I'm always trying to do the next thing, yeah. the new thing. Uh, if I think too much about it, things that are going to be completely new freak me out. Are you so, talking about in, in art specifically or, or in life? In no, general? just even like I got an instant pot and just, you know, it's like an electric pressure cooker and okay. just learning how to use this thing that can blow like crazy quantities of steam into my kitchen. Uh -huh. I have this trepidation about it. Okay. And, and, I've just keep avoiding dealing with it. And so it's just that, that kind of stuff, it's just yeah. simple things that are not going to be hard to do. And then once I do them, I say, well, why did you think that was going to be so hard? Mm -hmm. it, literally the second that I figure out that it's not as hard as I thought it was going to be or as scary. I mean, it's very yeah. strange. Do you ever try to trace that back to its source? I think it comes from my childhood. I think that um, my father was a crazy experimenter who tried lots of things, but he was largely absent. And mm. my mother was more of the person trying to tamp down the chaos. And That's so, it sounds like, and yeah. I was always really high energy and had lots of ideas and lots of things to talk about and say. And I think she was very much um, trying to contain that exuberance. Yeah. yeah. And so I don't think that, I don't think that, that, you know, there's that moment where you're super excited about a new, th a new thing that you might do. Like you were talking before about, you know, you're not sure what you're getting into and it's almost good that you don't know what you're getting into. Mm -hmm. And you kind of go into it a little bit naively because if you knew how complicated it was going to be, you maybe wouldn't you do stop it. Yourself. And I think that, uh, I never got past that first exuberant part without my mother sort of presenting all of the things that would potentially be very hard or difficult mm -hmm. or the challenges. And so it's almost like as soon as I get excited about something, new the next thing that immediately comes into the picture is sort of the, like the, la the laundry and list and of second guessing and all of the problems logistics and all yeah that. oh man does that is that painful for you or was it then it's i think it's a problem yeah and i think it's still something that affects the way that i think about my creative life yeah. especially but even other things in life i mean that the the i notice the way that other people celebrate like a, a challenge that they're going to face and mm. 
there's there are times when I'm feeling when all my sort of cylinders are firing when I'm feeling really kind of good and and centered that I get that feeling of excitement about this new challenge but there's a lot of other times when it feels like a really burdensome thing to think about and something I have to kind of push through the trepidation that I have That was my, that's what came up for me. And that could just be because I feel resentful of people who have done me wrong, you know? I don't know. I spent a lot of time they meant to or not, trying you know? not to feel resentment towards people. That's I think great. I got a lot of I that think... out of my system in my 20s. And as I've gotten older, I just don't, I don't see what the point of it is. I know it's not good and I don't like doing it. I don't want to do it, but I still do it. Yeah. It's not something I'm, I feel like I'm choosing, but I'm sure I'm choosing it subconsciously somehow like there's some there's some way in which i'm you know it puts me in the in the right or it puts me in a position where i feel like i didn't do anything you did something yeah you know? i think that's what it is but i don't really like that i don't want i don't see myself as a victim and i don't want to be i don't want to think of myself in those terms or think like people are you know, imposing their will upon me and trying to do harm or, you know, I don't, those aren't really the thoughts that occur. It's just more of an emotional thing. It's like, well, if you hadn't gotten in my way, I could have done that. You know, it's kind of like a really infantile reaction. Well, I think there's, but it's honest. It's an honest. Yeah. I mean, wanting to be right or wanting to feel like you were something happened to you that was against your, will or your wishes or your best interests i mean it's a normal it is a normal thing i just don't being right never seems to have any purpose (laughs) yeah yeah, that's a good point yeah it has the purpose of being right or being seen as being right but that doesn't usually gain it doesn't get you much but but it gets you resentment it gets you like other people's you know criticism well it's kind of like what we were talking about before it's more of an internal self-validating thing and and not really something that has a lot of outward effect necessarily right you know people maybe won't agree that you're right um and it may not really change your the way people treat you or might change it for the worse right and but you thinking that you're right somehow is what's important right somehow that gives you something yeah i never really i I never understand that in a vacuum yeah 
You don't pat yourself on the back. <laughs> congratulate yourself all day for job well done. I'm pretty skeptical and suspicious of myself anytime I pat myself on the back. Yeah. That's, that's like a red flag for me. You know, you're, you're, it's like false accolades kind of yeah. i mean my de- yeah my, de- my default is to sort of my default is to kind of be self-critical yeah like that seems to be the way to keep myself honest and pushing forward i think i'm the same but i but i think i'm also <laughs> i i'm good at justifying things i can weasel my way around you know i, I can, like healthy rationalizations but but i i like them when they somehow make everybody else come out good too you know oh, that's i mean good. Yeah, so yeah. it's like i want everybody to get i want everybody elevated. to get lifted and yeah. elevated by my rationalizations if that's they're just nice. if i'm just employing rationalization just to somehow elevate myself it seems like that's too easy yeah that's like too easy of a problem to solve <laughs> yeah and it doesn't really get you anywhere except for feeling separate from everyone right you know? like hey i'm better than all of you see good now now <laughs> now look at me all alone up here <laughs> in my false pedestal that I built myself. Yeah, it doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem very worthwhile. It's a weird place to, to shoot for, you know, to like be right all the time. In, in, you know, to make other people wrong in order to be right. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand. I mean, I think that mattered to me a lot more when I was a younger person. Yeah. Being right somehow was... It was like that was the end point. Because you're trying to find your place, right? And you want to you want to know that you're you're standing on your own two feet, and you like this is my stance, and I stand by it, and I can represent myself now from this place, and other people will know me and see yeah. me. Yeah. But, but then once you've done that, or once you see the the bullshit <laughs> that 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 yeah. is, you stop doing it. You're just like, well, here I am. This is what I. I mean, I think we all still naturally our default is to protect the ego and we don't want to be humiliated or, you know, seen as less than others or less than we think of ourselves or anything, you know, but I think that we, I don't know. I don't know. It feels like everybody's got this weird mix of like self-hatred and self aggrandizement or something, you know, like we walk around with some weird imbalance and it it can swing back and forth to either extreme and we try to keep it somewhere in the healthy middle. Yeah. It's kind of a sad, it's a sad way of thinking about it that. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, good, we... at, I'm good at coming up with this. <laughs> <laughs> That's my specialty. I find, I find sad lenses through which to view the world. Yeah. I mean, I just think there's so much friction when think about how remarkable it is that people get along as well as they do know, with each I other. Know, know. And just the, the friction that's created within your own brain, your own thoughts rubbing up against each other, and then you're, all that rubbing up against everybody else in society. I mean, it's pretty remarkable that people have intact senses of themselves and it's can true. function and navigate through the world. It is remarkable, yeah. And so, I mean, in that sense, I think it's not it's not this awful thing that we're trying to keep in balance, but just a a normal navigation of when you have too many consciousnesses all in one place, you know, sharing the same resources and commenting on the same things. Yeah. Having opposing views uh, that don't sit well in the same room or whatever. Yeah. 
I mean, we can't always just be completely open and adaptable to everything that's going on around us. I mean, even if I portray myself as being super adaptable, clearly that's not the case. I mean, I, you know, have my own objectives and goals in, in my interactions in the world. And I try to meet those goals and and objectives, you know, I mean, that's, that's what it is to be human is to sort of go out into the world and hopefully have some purpose and not just be kind of like floating around and following every little thought, every little place. I mean, I don't know how you could ever get anything done being that way. I don't either. So, you know, it, it's amazing. We don't kill each other more. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's a good point. I mean, I think about that in terms of just the way we move around on the planet in our various machines and stuff, you know, like the fact that we're not smashing into each other more than we are is is somewhat miraculous. And so, yeah, if you apply that same principle to just personalities, it's really, really amazing. We can walk the streets together. Well, if people start saying that the stoplights are fake news and just (laughs) ignoring them, then we're really in trouble. I mean, that's the thing is like, you guys agree that that's a green light and that the green light means you do this and the red yeah. light means you do that. Well, all we need to do is sort of build the same kind of consensus with larger, more complicated issues that we can all sort of agree upon in society and not right. resort to this, uh, that was, I didn't see a green light. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's true. Well, with things that are objectively so, that's one thing. But when it, you know, it very quickly gets into perception. You know, and the difference is that people, well, that's not, I was standing right there and watched it, but that's not what happened. That's not what I saw, you know? Yeah. You could have two people have a completely different telling of the same event based on their filters, based on their set of experiences and their biases, you know? Well, my so sister and I remember completely up. different things from our childhood. Yeah. I mean, yeah. she'll mention so something with, and I have, I'm, I don't remember, I don't remember feeling that way or having that happen or anything, wow. you know? And, and that's with like, nearly identical circumstances yeah right? exactly so think about how how far off we are from each other coming from all the different backgrounds that we have which is why i think it's important to look for the universal you know the commonalities the things that we do hold in common that we could share and say well shit even though we came from different walks of life different parts of the planet different times of whatever it's we have these other things that are always the same yeah for all of us. That's really out of fashion, though. Well, I'm bringing it back in. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you that's, are. Uh, that's that's good. So <laughs> That's great. All right. Well, maybe this is a good place to, to wrap it up. Yeah. Well, yeah. thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. That's good. All right. I'll see you around. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, friends. That was my friend, Cy DeGroat. Uh, You can check her out on Instagram. She's uh, just starting to show more of her artwork. She's doing some works in progress and things that are scary for her to show. So go go give her some support over there. Like it up. Um, You can find her at Cy DeGroat. That's at C-Y-D-E-G. R-O-A-T. Um, if you want to check me out on Instagram, that would be at outspoken underscore podcast. And, uh, you know, 
I like when people say what's up. So say hi. All right. I love you guys. I'll talk to you next week. Oh, goodbye.